Good morning. It's good to see everyone again. I really am glad to be back. It's a lot colder than it was in Mexico, but uh, it really is such a joy to be here. I really do enjoy the privilege that I have to bring the Word of God to you, to study the Word of God and see how it applies to our life. It is such an amazing privilege. And really, there's nothing else that I'd rather do than be here and do this and bring God's Word to you. And that's really saying something, especially looking at the topic of our text this morning. See, we've been working our way through reading the book of Mark and going verse by verse. And you can know that I didn't pick this passage for myself because the topic of today's passage is about hell. It's about the reality of hell. It's about the seriousness of it, the seriousness which God takes sin. And Jesus is telling this to his disciples. And he's telling them, he's telling his disciples about this in a context, if you remember from now it's about three weeks ago, where his disciples were arguing about who the greatest is. And when Jesus arrives in a small house, he confronts them about this, about this conversation that they're having about who the greatest is. And he calls to himself a small child in the house. He sets them before them and he picks them up in his arms. And he tells them in verse 36, or verse 37 rather, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And he was trying to teach his disciples a lesson, if you remember, of how to become great in the kingdom of God. And it's not by self-serving ambition, stepping on others in order to get to be the first place. How God counts those who are first are those who become a servant of everyone, even those who you think are less than you, which everyone in the ancient world would have said, a child doesn't contribute anything. They're of no value. Of course, they're less than me. And Jesus tells them that they are to become servants. What we're hearing when we read, and we're going to read from chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50, is Jesus' response to those who don't pursue this route to greatness. Let's read. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. 
where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, Jesus' words, when we talk about, especially the topic of hell, we can't help but be sobered up. R.C. Sproul was asked, what is the most difficult Christian truth to get your mind around? And he said it was the doctrine of hell. Hell's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? That word there picked up from Isaiah, where the worm does not die and the fire does not, is not quenched. Having better to have a great millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. These are harsh words. But Jesus loves us too much not to warn us of the reality of hell. Christianity is a very serious thing. Found a uh, Barna survey from 2009. And if you did not, if we're not aware, there is a, such a thing as casual Christianity. And he termed it as this casual Christianity is faith in moderation. It allows, it allows them to feel religious without having to prioritize their faith. Christianity is a low-risk, predictable proposition for this group, provided, providing a faith perspective that is not too demanding. A casual Christian can be all things that they esteem, a nice human being, a family person, religious an exemplary citizen, a reliable employee, and never have to publicly defend or represent difficult moral or social positions, or even to lose much sleep over their private choices, so long as they mean well and are sincere and generally just do their best. What Jesus tells us in our text today is that such cavalier attitude towards life is not Christian at all. That Christianity is a serious thing. You know, if you talk to me outside of the pulpit, you'll see that I'm not really that serious of a person. I make jokes, believe it or not. I make jokes. I like to try to figure out ways to make people laugh. Pretty much 99% of the stuff I say is you shouldn't take seriously. But there's something that happens when I stand behind this pulpit. I'm speaking God's word to you, God's truth. And serious things demand us to be serious about them. And hell is no laughing matter. Jesus does not believe in the casual Christian. And what we'll see in our text this morning, and you have a, a fill in the blank at the back of your bulletins, is that the reason why is that Jesus is serious about those, about those he cares for, that Jesus is serious about the consequences of sin, and that he is serious 
about what our calling is as Christians. So let's look at the first thing. What provokes this discussion about hell? Well, it's verse 42. Whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is a pretty grotesque image, isn't it? A millstone, what is that even? Well, millstone is just a grinding stone, a stone that you use to grind either olive oil or nuts or whatnot. But here that word, a great millstone, is kind of a dynamic translation. The word there is the millstone of a donkey. It's a millstone that's so big that a donkey has to pull it around to crush the olives, to crush the vast quantities of whatever they're trying to crush. And a millstone would have weighed tons. It would have been a millstone that a donkey would have pulled, would have had a great big hole in the center of it to fit in a post, which would be like a wheel-like structure that would circle as the donkey is called to walk around and around. What Jesus is saying is that whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, he would be better off wearing that thing as a necklace and being cast into the ocean. Before he talks about hell, notice why he talks about hell. Jesus is serious about people who follow him. He's so serious because he cares about his people. He is serious about those who would cause his little ones who believe in him to sin. He is serious about this because he knows that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. At this point, we read, we are reading about Jesus, how he was, in at least one sense, a hellfire preacher. He really believed in the reality of hell. He preached on it and explained it to people. But notice the context in which he does it. First, he's teaching his disciples, people who follow him. He's not teaching a way of salvation that is earned through how good we are at turning from sin. He's issuing a warning to those who would not turn away from their sin. But the context of the conversation, as we've already said, is he's talking to disciples who think that they're better than other people. There's a principle in Scripture that God gives grace to the humble, but God resists the proud. And this comes up over and over again when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees or he's going to confront in chapter 10, the rich young ruler. He's confronting people with the reality of hell, people who think that they have earned the right with God to be reconciled with him by their own works, that they're good enough. And what Jesus does to the proud is he humbles them. He instructs them that they are not good enough. He tells them what their sins 
deserve. The unfortunate thing about hellfire preaching as it's usually presented today is it's not done in that context. Think about John chapter 4, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus shows that he knows all of her sins, that she's an adulteress, that she has had five husbands. And it's interesting that at that point, Jesus does not say, he does not convince her and seek to make her understand the reality of hell and what her sins deserve. Why? Because she knows that she is not good enough. When her sin has been exposed, she sees her own unworthiness. And what does Jesus give to this person? He tells the Samaritan woman that he is the well of living water who gives eternal life to all who would come to him. And this should mark our tone. As Christians, as we talk about and focus on the reality of hell, we should do it with love, giving grace to those who are humble and who recognize their sin, but to the proud who do not see their sin or think they're better than everyone else. They need to have their sin held out in front of their, their face. They need to learn the reality of what their sin truly deserves. And unfortunately, I see in the when hellfire preachers are maybe on a college campus and they see the sin of different college students living in rebellion, typically the tone is almost one of joy in telling people that they're going to hell. Our heart needs to be the heart of God when we preach to people. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 tells us that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We should be pleading to them, telling them about hell to get them to turn away from their sins and turn to the living God. That's the purpose of these warnings. And he gives these warnings. He's so serious serious about the reality of hell because he cares about his people. Who is he caring about? Well, in verse 42, he's caring about these little ones who believe in him. He's talking about all Christians. Any follower of Christ. Think about the immediate context of who these believing ones are. I propose to you one of them would be the illustration he provided. He picked up a small child. And he uses him as the example of one that the kingdom of God belongs to. This will be made explicit later on in chapter 10 in verse 16, when, or verse 15 rather, where he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's why as Presbyterians, children are members of the church. The reason why is because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If I told you an illustration that I really like trucks, and I'm going to explain it to you because I really love my Honda Accord, that would make no sense. Why? 
because a Honda Accord is a car. It's not a truck. If the illustration is going to make sense, the appeal has to be something of the same category. Children are of the category of those to whom the kingdom of God belongs. But also, the direct reference just before this statement was in the man who was working for Christ, casting out demons in his name. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and follow him, whether or not they're a member of Evergreen Community Church or not. These are the little ones who Jesus loves so much that if you cause them to sin, there's a serious warning that's held out for you. You see, when Jesus talks about hell, he shows that something that we often miss. The reality of hell is not something incompatible with the love of God or the goodness of God or his justice. It's actually the fact that God takes sin seriously and punishes it is actually because he loves his children who are abused, who are mistreated, who the world rejects and sees them as less than and tramples over them. Jesus loves his persecuted church who dies for him. Jesus loves his church. He talks about hell because he's warning those who would threaten his children. Isn't that an amazing blessing? It's actually God's goodness that the reality of hell, why hell exists in the first place, is because of the goodness of God, because God's love for his people, his love for everything that is good, requires him to hate evil. Don't you have a sense of that? We might be a little offended at God that he would care for something as small and insignificant as a white lie or as looking at pornography, something that maybe doesn't affect anyone, with big air quotes there. But we all have this invent, inbuilt sense. When we see children abused, when we see people murder, when we see people going to schools and shooting up children, don't you see that you hate evil? God feels that, but God is so holy. He doesn't have that feeling towards only the great sins. He feels that feeling towards every sin. Our God is a holy God, an all-consuming fire, and we need to take him seriously, taking his love for his people seriously. But that's not the only thing that Jesus takes seriously. He takes seriously the consequences of sin. Notice how he shifts to those who would cause others to sin to what would cause us to sin. Verse 43, he says that if, that if your hand causes you to sin, that you're better off cutting it off than going into the unquenchable fires of hell. That if your feet causes you to stumble, it's better to cut one off. Or if your eye causes you to stumble, it's better to pluck it out. We have to be careful here. 
people have taken sin so seriously and seen the consequences of sin being hell so seriously that they've taken this text very literally, mutilating themselves. All you have to do is go back to the early church and you see accounts like this. And while we might esteem how seriously they took Jesus's words, they totally misunderstood it. Why do I say that? Because Mark chapter 7 came before these verses. And what does Jesus say in Mark chapter 7? He says that there is nothing outside of a person. This is verse 15, if you want to look, follow me. Mark chapter 7, verse 15 says, There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. Do you not see, verse 18, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Why? Since it enters his heart, not his heart, but his stomach. Verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. You see, if you cut off your hand, you don't deal with the problem. Your heart is still there. If you cut off your foot, you haven't rid yourself of the problem of sin. You know, I've encountered young folks in seeking to get married, people who maybe struggle with pornography and think that by getting married, that's going to solve the problem. Let me be the first one to inform you that that is a lie. Why? Because our outside circumstances are not the root cause of our sin problem. The only way our sin can be dealt with is have the root removed to be given a heart of flesh by the Holy Spirit by trusting in Jesus Christ to forgive us and cleanse us, cleanse us, cleanse us there we go, of our sins, removing the guilt and the corruption. This is why it's so important to realize Jesus is talking to disciples. He's talking to people who follow him. And what advice does he give them? Well, he gives them the most practical of advice. Notice that he call, he points to the hands, to feet, to the eyes. You see, it's not an accident that Jesus speaks about sin in such concrete forms. See, sin, when it comes to committing sin, it's something that we do with our bodies. We think it with our mind. We feel it with our hearts. We perform it with our hands, with our feet, with our eyes. Sin is something we do as Christians. It's not this abstract concept. It's not this evil that's out in the world. Sin is something that resides in every human being and is expressed through our daily lives. And what advice does he give to the Christian who follows him? He tells them to fight their sin, to not 
continue in their sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us that if you've been baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you belong to him. That you're not free to live to your own pleasure, to continue in your sin, as if you maybe would magnify God's grace by becoming a greater and greater sinner. No. We are called to put our sin to death. I'm going to quote three different people. The first one's J.I. Packer. He says, let go and let God is not the governing principle in regards to fighting sin. Rather, it is trust God and get going. When it comes to the fight against sin, we are not just to lay on our backs and, and pray to God and say, God, please remove this problem from me. Rather, as Alistair Begg says, we're to devise and strategize so that we do not end up in the predicament that we find ourselves in. We are to trust God and get going. Realize, dear Christian, that if you have your faith in the living God, the living God will grant you life. And part of our evidence for knowing that we have eternal life in the future is that he's given us a present life. The Holy Spirit really is with Christians to fight sin. But what Jesus warns his disciples, what he warns anyone who might think that they're a disciple of Jesus Christ, is that, that they choose and find themselves loving their sin and clinging to it so closely that they're not willing to get rid of it, your end is eternity in torment of hell. And the words here that are supposed to bring such seriousness to us is that of unquenchable fire. Notice that the Old Testament is not the only place where God is meant to be taken seriously. Where people feel like God is harsh. The book of Isaiah ended with that verse of a warning to those who would not turn from their sin that they would be like the dead bodies on a field where the worm are continually consuming their flesh. That's a grotesque image. Why is Jesus incorporating this? He's trying to give a picture to God's people of what God's wrath to unrepentant sinners is. This is the seriousness which we are to take Christianity. The reason why we're not to be casual about our faith and why we're supposed to why we're supposed to pursue, there we go, pursue Christ with all of us. With all our to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The reason why is because God has given us life and the consequences, and why we preach the gospel to other people that they too should follow the Lord Jesus Christ is because these consequences are real. In whatever temp temporary suffering we might experience, there's not supposed to be a sound there. Whatever pain we might experience in this life, whatever self-denial that we are really called to, it pales in comparison to the great rewards we'll get. And it also pales in, in 
comparison to the promised pain to those who rightly deserve it. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is no one good, no one righteous, no one who pursues God, that everyone is worthy of God's wrath and curse of, that's, pain, that's displayed for us in such excruciating detail forever and ever. And that should cause in us fear. We should have fear of God. The God who's not only able, Matthew chapter 10, to kill the body like men, but is able to kill both body and soul in hell. This is not a topic that I would just want to bring up if it wasn't true, if it wasn't supposed to be taken seriously by us. But lastly, Jesus brings it back to his disciples and the problems that they've been having with this weird conversation about salt. When he's explaining to his disciples about the seriousness of our calling as Christians, the seriousness of our calling. He wants us to not only be serious about, to see his seriousness about his care for us, the seriousness of the consequences due to us for our sins, but he also wants to say that we need to take it ser- our calling seriously. Well, what good is salt? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Well, so- salt had many variety of uses in the Old Testament world. Two kind of stick out, though. Salt was of such value in the Old Testament, well, in the ancient world, that it was often exchanged as a form of currency. Salt was used for preservative. And if you think about it, they didn't have refrigeration. Anything, any sort of meat, if it was going to last, if they were going to store it, would have to be salted. And I think it's important also to realize that salt is good. It tastes good. Salt loses its saltiness as part of its badness. I'm a salty person, salt food guy rather than sweet. So, you know, kind of affirms me there. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 tells Christians to season their language with salt, that they might be at peace with others. Perpetual salt is a preserving agent. It's a seasoning agent. Most likely, all these pictures are being included here. It's kind of hard, especially in such a short verse, to figure out exactly what one instance he's trying to pick up on. Probably, though, the most predominant image in talking to his disciples would be the connotation with salt and sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 12, talks about a meat sacrifice that is to be salted as a pleasing aroma to God. That everyone will be salted with fire. The salt of a pleasing aroma. Aroma. We see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where believers are called to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to God, serving them, our God, with our all. Salted with fire, it's helpful to note that Peter actually talks about this same 
thing in 1 Peter chapter 4. He tells believers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. This is 1 Peter 12, chapter 4, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But to rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Verse 15, he tells Christians to not suffer, though, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. That if anyone suffers, suffer as a Christian. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, that will be what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, the fire here is the same fires, the same connotation, at least, that was referenced about hell. It's about pain. And you see, everyone is going to endure pain. Every person who lives, lives in a fallen world will experience pain in this life. And our pain will either be a foretaste, if we reject Christ, a foretaste of the pain that is to come in hell. Or God will use, Romans chapter 8, God will use all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. The pains of this life are to test Christians. And we're not to suffer like the rest of the world for doing what is wrong. We are called as Christians to suffer for doing what is good. And what's the result of this? What's the result of having salt within ourselves, verse 50? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What happens when you take God's word seriously? What happens when you follow not just the love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you also love your neighbor as yourself? Not being taking sin lightly. Not causing and thinking that it's an okay thing to cause another Christian to sin. And not thinking it's a little thing for yourself to sin. You know what's going to happen? Peace. All this striving that the disciples are having and thinking that they're greater than one another. It would be solved if they took Christ's word seriously. If they took sin seriously and the consequences of it. And if they took their calling as Christians to be salt in the world, yes, but also have salt work in their own bodies, the preservative of God's word. You know, we're called to be like Christ. The sad reality is, is most people do not take Christ's word seriously. Seriously, They don't take the reality of hell seriously. We must not follow Christ casually. You know, the definition of casually, 
You know what it is? I had to look it up just to make sure. It's by definition, casual is to a lack of emotional commitment, a lack of seriousness, a lack of loyalty. It is a permissive approach to things that has little interest or enthusiasm to be more than superficially involved. Casualness mostly centers on me, doing what makes me comfortable and fits my schedule or fulfills my agenda. The call to follow Christ is a life of self-denial. It's not something to be treated lightly or casually, and it's not something that we are not to be emotionally engaged in. We're to follow Christ with everything that we are. But you know what should convince us more of the seriousness of following Christ than the reality of hell? What should convince us most of the seriousness of following Jesus and taking him at his word, the seriousness of sin and the consequences thereof, is seen in how serious Jesus took sin. Jesus took sin so seriously that he was willing to become a human being, to live a life of sin under the consequences of sin, of misery, of suffering to the point of death, even on a cross, being tortured himself. Why? All to redeem a people for himself. If you look at your life and you think that there's any sin that you can take casually, you are deceived. Jesus died to pay for sins, and if he cared about it so much to die for it, why do you think you are not to die to your sin? And the amazing news is, is that none of this purchases our salvation. The only thing that purchases our salvation, that redeems us from this course that we're all on to go to hell, deservingly so, the only thing that saves us is the work of the Father planning to save us. The work of the Holy Spirit giving us eyes to see and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplishing salvation for his people. Glory be to God who, while we were yet sinners deserving of this, died to save us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us your word, that you have hopefully, Lord, stirred your people and those who are yet to become your people out of their casualness when it comes to their sin. Lord, I pray that they would take their sin seriously and they would take it so seriously that they would recognize that their only hope in life and death is to find themselves belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ who did what we could not do in living a perfect life and died the death that we deserve to die. Lord, may we take sin so seriously that we would be willing to proclaim it to others, that we wouldn't be comfortable with our family just getting along with them, just getting along with our friends, 
but instead that we would love them enough the way Jesus loves his people, love them enough to tell them of the reality of hell and what awaits them if they do not turn to you. We love you, Lord, and we praise your holy name. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we'll sing a song of celebration, praising God for giving us this word, and we'll praise him using 